Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Hello, Vass here with this week's How To Academy podcast. For the last year, How To Academy has partnered with Pictet, one of Europe's leading wealth and asset managers, to produce a series called Found in Conversation. It's a podcast that tackles the big themes of the world we live in, with guests like Jared Diamond, Peter Singer, and the star of the episode you're about to listen to, Malcolm Gladwell. You can find it on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode dropped in January. I hope you enjoy it. It is the beginning of the most fabled love affair in history. Summoned to the Roman city of Tarsus by Mark Anthony, Cleopatra, ruler of Egypt and the world's richest woman, sails down the Sidnus River to meet him, accompanied by an extraordinary entourage. It is a spectacle the likes of which the Roman has never seen. Shakespeare describes her barge as a burnished throne burned on the water pulled by oars of silver beneath perfume purple sails, while the queen herself is dressed as Aphrodite, lying upon a cloth of gold, fanned by boys in the guise of Cupid. Cleopatra was a woman who knew the value of a first impression. Aware of Mark Anthony's love of Hellenic culture and his appetite for luxury, she stage-managed an entrance he would never forget leading to a romance and an alliance that would change the fate of the ancient world. In the year 2020, our first encounters with strangers are more likely to be made in video conferences than in barges of gold. But the importance of making a powerful first impression certainly hasn't gone away. I'm Rosario Lebrija Razvetayev, your host for Founding Conversation, a podcast brought to you by the PICTA Group, sharing ideas and insights for understanding and improving the modern world. This episode explores first impressions. How reliable are they? Can a bad first impression be dangerous? How much control can we have over them? Joining us are writer Malcolm Gladwell, one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People, host of the Top Chart podcast Revisionist History, and author of the international best-selling books The Tipping Point, Blink, Outliers, and most recently, Talking to Strangers, and Hubertus Koops, the Bicta Group's head of group communications. First of all, I'd like to start with a question for both of you. Malcolm, you argue that humans are hardwired to make remarkably quick judgments of each other. So before we get into the deeper discussion, 
what is your first impression of each other? Well, uh, that's an interesting question. I focused on the name, as Hubertus actually pointed out. It's an unusual name, so that was my first thought. I was wondering what nationality he was. And then I was listening to his voice because I wondered whether he had an accent. And then I noted that he was much better dressed. I mean, he wearing a shirt and tie, which I'm not. So I, I wondered, oh, he must be much more professionally minded than I am. But that was as far as I got. What about you, Hubertus? I mean, obviously, you know, Malcolm a little bit. Yeah, it's a little bit easier for me because uh, in, in preparation for this, of course, last night at around 11 or so, I was watching a few YouTube videos to kind of get in the mood. And I figured that uh, Malcolm would not be wearing a tie. And I'm actually normally in the office, I don't wear one. But um, it's kind of the look that I always have when I interview people that I, I like to wear a shirt and a tie, but no jacket ever. And I roll up my sleeves. It gets me in the right frame of mind. So um, that's why I do it. And we can talk about that a little bit later on, because actually it's part of uniform and, and all those things are part of first impressions for sure. Absolutely. I mean, it's why one of the major reasons that we give people uniforms, particularly people who we want to behave in uh, very particular ways and who we want the public to have a kind of uniform reaction, uh, inadvertent pun, we want to have a, them to have a standard reaction to. We want them to consider the person not as an individual, but as a member of a profession. And so, yeah, they, they, there are ways in which we actively try and manage first impressions through things like uh, uniforms. Manners are also another a hugely important way in which we manage first impressions. Now, you've written about first impressions or how we perceive others in not just your latest book, Talking to Strangers, but also in Blink. And the perception of the messenger, at least, plays a role in tipping point. So why is this topic important to you? What's driven your interest uh, in writing about it? Yeah, that's a very good question. I've never wondered why it's important to me. I've, I've always only noted that it is important to me. I mean, part of it is that if you're a journalist, if you're in a profession where you are acquired to meet large numbers of strangers, then it's something you naturally dwell on, not just required to meet them, but required to make sense of them, describe them to others, introduce them to your readers, so this is a kind of, it's central to the task of, to the professional task that I have. So that's maybe one reason. I'm also a, someone who was born in one culture, raised in another, lives in a third culture, and has parents from two very different cultures. And so the notion of being someone who is an outsider, who is relatively unfamiliar with people around him is, is common to my experience. So when you talk about a first impression, I, I was trying to think about this for myself. How do you define it? Is it the first few seconds? Is it the first five to 10 minutes? Is there a time frame that you can put on a first impression? Well, you know, we know from psychological research that people need only the, they need fractions of a second to make a pretty enduring and powerful, draw a pretty enduring and powerful impression of someone. So it can be very, very, very specific. And we also know that the impressions that are formed in that first extremely brief encounter do tend to color the way in which we interpret subsequent information that we gather. So, you know, you can, you can think of a very simple experiment where I expose someone to a second 
of looking at a teacher and I have them rate the teacher. And then I give them six months of experience with the teacher and I have them rate the teacher and I compare the ratings. And the, the answer is the ratings are pretty similar. So we do make up our mind very quickly and cling to that. So I think the answer to your question is first impression. We are really talking about is why the word snap judgment is actually a better word because um, it is snap. It's not a, it's not a prolonged period of intelligence gathering. So we, in a sense, we all get put in the box by those that we meet, and it's almost impossible to change that first impression, or is it possible? Well, not impossible, but, you know, because all of us change our mind about people. I mean, if I asked you to list all of your friends, some portion of them, I'm quite sure, would be people who you didn't necessarily love at first sight or see the possibility for friendship at first sight. So, you know, we're not locked into these impressions. The problem is that when we're in situations where the, the inferences that we gather in that first moment are really all we have to go on. So, you know, the, the foundational story of my book, Talking to Strangers, was about an encounter between a white police officer and a young black woman in Texas, one of the most infamous of the police violence cases um, that have rocked America over the last few years. And there's a case where the police officer, the total time he spends with a woman is only a few minutes. And he doesn't have any access to anything other than what he can gather in that first instant. And he's not aware of the limitations of his kind of intelligence gathering on the subject. And that leads to a disastrous encounter. I was reading that and I thought, but that's exactly where I came up with this, uh, with this question of whether it's a few minutes or more, because you know, he, she gets out of the car, she lights a cigarette, uh, and he misinterprets all those things. So I felt like perhaps, yes, he had an initial view, uh, but then it just kept building and building and building in the perception that he maybe initially had. And she did nothing in those moments to signal to him that, in fact, uh, she was probably more scared than she was uh, trying to be, uh, you know, combative. Yeah, so one of the things, if you look at that incident, which I, I look at in great detail in talking to strangers, one of the conclusions you could draw is that uh, this ought to change the way we train people like police officers that what he doesn't do and what he should do is kind of find a way to test his hypothesis about her. So he draws a conclusion about her that she's dangerous and that he needs to proceed with great caution and never re-examines that hypothesis over the course of the five minutes he's dealing with her. And that's where he gets into trouble. There's nothing wrong with drawing that initial snap inference, but you need to test your hypothesis with evidence that you gather subsequently and he doesn't do that, and he should do that. And it's that failure that results in the tragedy that ensues. Hubert, it's, having headed communications in the corporate world for so many years, why do you think first impressions are important? Do you have any theories on this? Success and failure in the corporate world is very much dependent on first impressions. And if someone meets an executive for the first time, that can often determine how far they'll go um, because they're not going to see that person very often. And, and if they leave a lasting positive memory, then that's a good thing. And uh, if the executive thinks, well, that person was waffling a bit, they weren't very self-confident, they didn't look me in the eye, um, they didn't quite dress right, then you know, it's going to be tougher. It doesn't mean that they won't be able to, they'll have other bosses and they'll perhaps find their way. But uh, it's hugely important. And I have in the past actually looked at times to hire people 
who specifically had what I would call executive presence. It means that in the presence of a CEO, they don't need me. They can be there on their own and they'll hold their ground and they'll be respected. So that I think is just as important in the, in, in the corporate world as it, as it is in anything else. If you want to have success, then the first impression matters. Yeah. It raises this interesting question of what is the point of managing a first impression? And what I would say it is, is it is not that in those first few seconds, you are communicating something meaningful and deeply accurate about who you are and what, and your character and behavior and such. I think what it is, is you are allowing the people around you to get to the real you. So you don't derail their impression of you with something that is distracting, extraneous, irrelevant. So why do I dress in a suit and stand up straight and have a firm handshake and look you in the eye and react politely to the things you say so that you don't get sidetracked by saying, oh, Malcolm seems ill at ease or Malcolm seems badly educated or Malcolm seems a little bit boorish or Malcolm seems... No, what you do is all those kinds of little tiny things allow the first impression to go by without incident. And it allows you to get a real crack at who I am. One of the most disastrous first meetings in history was between Lord McCartney, Britain's first ambassador to China, and the Qianlong Emperor of China in 1793. McCartney had been sent by King George III to establish a permanent basis for trade between the two nations. McCartney brought over 600 crates of gifts to the Chinese court in a grueling year-long sea voyage. Accompanied by a procession of servants, musicians, and scientists bearing rugs, grand scientific displays, and mechanical wonders, he was baffled when his mission failed. McCartney refused to follow the Chinese custom of bowing nine times in front of the emperor, called the kowtow, because, he argued, the British king had the same status as the emperor. A compromise was agreed, but the mission failed to gain the trading concession sought by the British. In fact, it was less about the kowtow than a colossal clash of two civilizations. The emperor saw the gifts as tribute paid by a lesser power, while McCartney considered the British as the most powerful nation on earth. So to transition to this next part, which is, you know, how do people perceive us? What drives the impressions? I want you to maybe tell us the Paul Revere story from Tipping Point. It's a little bit different, but I think it does explain to a degree that someone who has who has made a first impression, who has a profile with, with people, will influence, in a way, how they're going to act in the future. Yeah, well, this is one of the most famous stories of, in American history. It's at the very beginning of the American Revolution, when word comes in Boston that the British are on their way to attack the, the American, I hesitate to call them patriots because I'm an Englishman. So the American upstarts, the American... Uh, uh, insurgents, and a man rise, rise out in the countryside called Paul Revere to warn everyone that the British were coming and to, to get everyone to grab their muskets and gather at dawn and face the advancing British army. And he's not the only one who goes out that night, but he's the only one who actually manages to summon people 
to effectively get people, successfully get people to meet the British the next day. And the answer is, well, what's different about his pitch? And the answer is that he was someone who was had a existing network of relationships throughout the greater Boston area. He was a very, very socially connected, well-known figure. And so a warning from him or a request from him meant something very different from the identical request from someone who didn't have an existing network of relationships. And it's a, a very powerful and interesting lesson because it just reminds us how much are the way in which we perceive messages is a function of the existing, pre-existing social context that the doctor who you've known your whole life who tells you something means something very different from the identical message from a doctor you've never met before. And it, it's funny you bring it up because it's the flip side of the problem I was trying to get at with my last book, Talking of Strangers, which is that communications with strangers are uniquely difficult and we're not set up to deal with them. You know, as human beings, we evolved with people like Paul Revere in our midst. We evolved in small groups and we had deep histories with everyone in that group. And so when there was some kind of urgent communication or transfer of knowledge or transfer of information, it was received within a context of familiarity. And nowadays, the opposite is true, that much of what we learn is, is received within a context of unfamiliarity. And in fact, that's become the norm. And that is, that is something that is true only of the last, whatever, 50, 100 years. And it's something we're not good at navigating. It's, I think it's the source of an enormous amount of friction in the modern world, which is what do we do with information that comes um, in the absence of some kind of clarifying social context? Why do you think it's absent the norm now? Because of uh, massive urbanization and we all live in, uh, in, in large cities now? Uh, is it digital communications? Because I don't think we really not really interact on digital. We consume what other mm. people put out there. Is that, is it, is it mainly urbanization? It's all those things. When I, when I think of my two grandfathers, one grandfather lived in Seven Oaks and took the train every day into the city to work at an insurance company. And he had, that was the only job he had in his adult life. He worshiped at the same church his entire life. He lived in the same corner of Kent the entire life. The number of people who he ran into on a daily basis who he did not already know was vanishingly small. I imagine he shopped at the same butcher, you know, took his, bought his clothes from the same tailor. My other grandfather lived on a top of a hill in rural Jamaica. And I would say he met a stranger once every six months. In fact, there's a story my mother tells about a man named Mr. Swabi who came to dinner once, who was a stranger. He was someone who, Jamaican who had been traveling abroad for several years. And it was a great moment of, a memorable moment in her childhood that this man who they didn't know came to dinner. But now think about my life. I run into people who I've never met before every single day. That has happened in two generations, that shift. And my grandparents, my grandfathers, their way was the historic way that human beings live their life. My way is 50 years old. Now, let me get back a little bit to what we were talking about before. You know, when, when you have that first encounter, in your research, in the work that you've done, have you found anything where you would say, 
this is what matters most. This is what people look at. Is it confidence or lack thereof? Is it voice and language? Is it dress? Is it gender? Is it race? Uh, all those things matter, but I don't know if you've come across any research that says, well, uh, the first thing that people typically do is this, and then it's this, and then it's that. Well, I think it's very uh, both cultural specific and individual. So if you can imagine, if you're living in the American South in 1955, skin color is going to make a huge difference in your first impression. If you live in Atlanta today, probably not. I mean, I go to Atlanta a lot. Atlanta is an incredibly integrated city. You sort of stop noticing the differences between black and white people in Atlanta, and you focus on something else. So I think it's, I think all of us probably have our own hierarchy of things that we notice or that we privilege in a first encounter. I know, for example, I am very, very, very focused um, on people's voices. I spend a huge and not in a conscious way, in an unconscious way, when I reflect on the impressions I have of people, uh, voice just matters dis hugely disproportionately to me. And it's very, very difficult for me at first to take seriously someone whose voice I don't like. The tone or the level of the voice or the accent? It's some elusive combination of all those things. I'm a, I'm a voice snob. I... There are certain voices I like and some I don't. I won't listen to the podcast of people whose voices I don't like. I wonder if that has to do with the fact that you used to do most of your work on the phone. Yeah, I don't. It's funny. I don't. Yeah, it's very difficult to trace these things. Now, I want to cover this concept that does seem to be a bit universal in terms of first impressions that you cover in Talking to Strangers, which is that misunderstandings are most common when there's a deviation in the demeanor of a person. From the norm. So, for example, a person who's actually confident is avoiding eye contact at all costs. So, are these people, and I've heard you describe them as a, as a subset, are they the ones where first impressions most often go wrong? And maybe if you want to, you can use the friends example here, because I think it aptly describes it. Yeah. So, yeah, this is something I write about a lot in talking to strangers, which is one of the assumptions we use in making sense of people is that there is a concordance between the way you feel and the way those, the way your emotions are expressed on your face and in your body language. So we assume that if you're smiling, you're happy inside. And that if you're frowning, you're angry or disturbed inside and all, you know, um, and in most cases, those inferences are relatively accurate. However, there are, uh, a non-trivial number of people and a non-trivial number of cases where uh, there is divergence between the way we feel inside and the way we signal it on the outside. And I, I, in my book, I talk about the, you know, watching an episode of the television show Friends with the sound off. And the question is, can you make sense of Friends with the sound off? And the answer is you can, because when you're dealing with trained actors, particularly comedians, there is always, they are trained to have 100% uh, consistency between the way they're supposed to feel and the way they express those feelings to the camera, right? That's what it means to act. If you watch a lot of television, you come to believe erroneously that normal people also have this perfect consistency. They don't. 
you know, and, and there are some really lovely research done by psychologists to demonstrate just how often even the strongest emotions fail to register publicly on our face and in our body language. So it's a very, very dangerous, that's a trap we fall into all the time with strangers. Observe their body language and facial expressions and think we know what's going on underneath. And uh, the truth is we don't. And that's a, that is, as I said, a very dangerous assumption to make when dealing with a stranger. In the autumn of 1931, a young Englishman by the name of John Scott Ellis took out his new red Fiat for a drive around Munich. It was a sunny day and everything seemed bright when suddenly he took a right turn and collided with a pedestrian crossing the street. Scott Ellis immediately stopped and opened his window. The man seemed unhurt, quickly got up, smiled and shook hands with his driver. The epitome of composure and grace. This might be the least reliable first impression anyone has ever given. Two years later, the man Scott Ellis ran over became the Chancellor of Germany. His name was Adolf Hitler. Let's move to the last topic, which I think is perhaps the one that, uh, at least when you're thinking about a business or day-to-day context, is interesting to, to consider. And I want to look at it from two angles. Can you influence how you're seen? And how can you limit your biases? And let's start with the second one, which you cover also in talking to strangers. How can you limit your biases? Can we learn not to prejudge? And are there people who have this ability more naturally? I think we can be conscious of, we can be made aware of just how prevalent and problematic our prejudgments are, and we can take steps to limit them. So, you know, I've thought a lot about job interviews and there's a very interesting body of research that says maybe the first couple of rounds of a job interview should not be in person. That you should start by, and I, I do it. I do it. When I, when I hire people, I make them remove from their resume. The first thing I did was I make them remove from their resume any reference to what schools they attended because I thought that was, I was using that to prejudge them. And then the last time around, I went even further and I didn't meet anyone who I was, I did it all on the phone. And I think that's a better, it doesn't mean you never meet them, of course, but in that initial, you know, when you have five candidates and you're choosing between them, among them, I think it, it is wise that the first round, you should limit the your access to irrelevant information. So what they look like, whether they are tall or short, well-dressed or not well-dressed, attractive or unattractive, thin or overweight, black or white, male or female even, is not relevant, right? In the beginning, you should just take them as they are. And later, that stuff is, obviously, you're going to learn that eventually. But I really wonder whether a lot of the reason why we, why the upper levels of power are filled with people who all look the same is that these biases are a lot stronger than we believe, I mean, I think you describe it well in Blink, where you say white, tall, male equates to competence and power. And that immediately is where people default. But you described this one approach in Blink where, as part of an experiment, participants were asked to watch track and field events where black athletes were successful prior to making judgments on black people. And, and that seemed to make a difference. Yeah, I mean, that goes to this question. When we were talking earlier about 
what is the kind of structure of people's prejudgments. And our prejudgments are a function of our experience. And it just says, if you're someone who grows up around a lot of very high-functioning Black people, you're not going to have the same, obviously, have the same prejudgments of, I mean, I grew up with a lot of high-functioning Black people, my mom, my aunt, my cousins. You know, that gives me a huge advantage in dealing subsequently with Black people because I'm not carrying negative stereotypes into the into the interaction. Or even on a more simpler level, my business partner had grew up with a very, very strong, capable, assertive mother. He has hired more women for senior posts in our little company than most of his peers. Why? Because he's totally, he doesn't, he's totally comfortable with hiring women in positions of authority. He grew up with that model, right? These are just simple ways of saying that our experience shapes the judgments we make. It's why, if you're a parent, you should put your child in a school that has a large amount of diversity because you're making, you're altering the substance of your child's subsequent judgments. So let's flip the coin and say, now I'm in a position where I'm trying to make a good impression. We, we talked about this a little bit earlier. Is there a, a, a tested way to make a good impression uh, without sacrificing your identity? Well, I don't know whether I have any advice that's different from the kind of advice your parents would have given you. You know, I think those are, I've sort of, I, I think things like manners, which were a huge, in sort of the 19th century and early 20th century, manners were among the kind of middle and educated classes, a matter of huge consequence. An enormous amount of time and attention was paid to ensuring that children were instructed in the codes of kind of polite behavior. And we've gotten away from that a little bit. And I think that's a mistake. I think that there is a reason why people spent that much time and attention on manners. Because manners, as I said, are the way in which you you can manage those initial encounters in a way that's not to your detriment. And I've been very intrigued recently with programs, um, I think they're probably around the world, but I know a couple in the United States that work with uh, kids from poor neighborhoods and have been very successful. And one of the things those programs have, the successful programs have done is stress this very point. You spend an enormous amount of attention teaching kids from poor backgrounds what it means to behave in a professional middle or upper middle class environment because they didn't get that at home. How could they, right? And it's that's not a trivial or a cynical undertaking. That is a profoundly serious undertaking that understands that that accounts for the way in which decisions are made in the real world and says, I am not going to let these young people um, be disadvantaged because they don't understand these codes. So in, exactly, it's these codes, and it's a way. It's the it's teaching them the correspondence that you're talking about earlier in terms of if you you know feel this way, then you act this way. If you're confident, then this is how you act. You know, I had to have to train myself or to look into people's eyes when I'm talking to them because often I like to look to the side and think uh, and then say something. And uh, in, but when I'm in an interview situation, on occasion I will just make sure I do it because that's what I've been taught. But of course, if I haven't been taught, if I don't know, it makes a difference. I was just going to say, I mean, I think there's a limit to how far you go now, because you want to make a first impression and you want to 
blend in in a way so that they give you a chance. But there's also, if you go too far, I mean, for example, as a young woman, you want to make yourself a little bit less feminine in certain circumstances. And then you realize you're losing part of your identity of, or who you are if you decide to put yourself as this uh, very, well, if you try to copy the ideal um, corporate white man. I agree with you. I don't think you want to go that far, but I would say it's a matter of managing your identity. And there's a big difference between those two things. You do want to communicate in some sense, um, some essence of your personality, but just you just want to do so in a way that Uh, gives people a, a fair shot at figuring out who you are, right? You know, uh, not kind of um, distracting, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a obvious and absurd versions of this. If I showed up for a job interview, you know, having just gone for a 10 mile run, all sweaty and smelly, I'm, I'm still me. My talents haven't changed, but I've made it impossible for the interviewer to get at the real me, right? I just, it's just a stupid distraction. Like, why would I do that? Even if I'm the most serious, what if I was a world-class runner and that was actually at the core of my identity? I still wouldn't do that because it's just dumb, right? That's sort of, that's all, I think that's all we're saying. When people are perceiving others, how does it vary from culture to culture? Has there been one instance or one story? I mean, I know Hubert says you grew up in Asia and the US um, and Malcolm, you've written a lot of, obviously a lot of very different stories, but is there one that stands out of, of a first impression that you wouldn't have imagined that it's very specific to that culture? Well, I've had the standard observations about Northern Europeans that they are uh, much slower to express emotion and to warm up to you, which used to trouble me, but now I quite like it because I think of that as in the context of our conversation, that's a cultural strategy uh, for dealing with the problematic nature of first impressions, right? It's, they are deferring judgment on who you are until they know you a lot better. Now, maybe their default, in some sense, their initial default feels like hostility, <laughs> but that's fine. <laughs> um, I do think you get a better shot at a second impression in a culture that withholds initial judgment than you do in a culture that rushes in. And I've given, I remember giving a talk once in Finland and the talk was, you know, an hour long. And then we had half an hour of questions by kind of minute 85, I got them to laugh. But, you know, that was, I felt like, all right, they decided to collect 85 minutes of evidence before deciding I was someone worth laughing with, right? It's pretty, actually pretty admirable. I prefer that to someone who, dis, who dismissed me in minute one and never revisited the judgment. Well, so you, Rosario, you, you know, are the one who run this podcast normally, and I stole it for the day. And, I, and we talked a lot about first perceptions and, and, and but you know, all of us are born with certain things that uh, be it our gender, be it race, whatever, that we, that we can't change, but that, that don't necessarily have to define how we're perceived. And um, so I thought maybe it's fitting if you end uh, on a story uh, around that topic. I was born with three fingers in one hand, actually. And people don't usually tell that I have three fingers and I remember perfectly when I was about like 16 years old I, I received this call from a friend of my aunt's and she just had a baby that didn't have a hand 
and she was telling me you know how how did your parents educate you to be confident how did your parents you know make it so that you you didn't feel like this was something that was going to inhibit you and uh, and she started talking about buying all these mittens for the baby um to hide the hand and and i remember just since i was 16 i was still a teenager but i told her you know that's the worst possible thing you could do for your child because you have to teach every person is special and every person is made to be whatever way you know they're made to be and yeah i think that the, whatever you put out there and the, the persona that you put out there or the person that you are or that that first impression that you give um it's really up to you and and i think it's you know for me personally if i'd been somebody that was very ashamed of my hand or if i was somebody that thought it was going to be you know something that would inhibit my development it would have but but in my brain i just said you know what you can play the guitar you can you know write with your right hand and and i think you know if you think it you can make it i don't know if that's the experience you've had malcolm but uh but at mm -hmm. least that's what i've experienced in my life i think it's made you the incredibly strong woman you are to be honest <laughs> thank you <laughs> great malcolm thanks a lot for taking the time This week's guests on Founding Conversation were Malcolm Gladwell and Hubertus Kulps. This series is brought to you by the Bicta Group, one of Europe's leading independent wealth and asset managers, in collaboration with the How To Academy, London's premier public forum for sharing global thought leadership. Executive producers are me, Rosario Lebrija Rasvetayev, and Vasily Christodoulou, with Stephen Barber as our editorial advisor. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.